Well, it's appropriate that we're sitting in the food court here at the University of Canberra because I'm interviewing Professor Domasthenos Panatakos, visiting professor from Greece, and you've just been doing a lecture here at the University of Canberra. And it was really interesting because I think it's a really good example of some of the challenges in collecting and analysing scientific data. And you were talking about nutrition and tell me some of the challenges that you face in that because it looks to me like a pretty wicked sort of a problem. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, really, it's uh, indeed uh, measuring nutrition and particularly nutritional habits is a very difficult and complex uh, topic is a very difficult task because um, although we can easily measure levels of uh, adherence uh, uh, to a specific uh, food pattern, uh, to measure quality of diet is quite different, difficult. That's why we have uh, developed the past 20-30 uh, years several uh, diet scores or diet indices in order to help us to measure the quality of diet and the level of adherence to certain uh, dietary patterns like the Mediterranean diet pattern, a region that I come from, but uh, a diet pattern that has been widely known and uh, adopted, I think. So how do you know what the effect of a diet is? Uh, based on these diet indices, we correlate them with hard or soft outcomes like uh, death or development of a disease and we see the effect size measures and we uh, see how uh, adherence to a dietary pattern uh, may uh, reduce uh, the risk of a certain disease outcome. Is it challenging collecting the data in the first place? Can you trust what people... T I presume you're doing things like surveys and stuff where I have to check how many times I ate meat or whatever? It's always risky to interview people, as you interview me now, and uh, it's always risky to... Uh, believe that uh, always their answers are true. Sometimes people, when it comes for uh, their lifestyle habits, like uh, dietary habits or smoking or physical activity, but particularly dietary habits and uh, smoking habits, for example, uh, they tend to, to lie. They tend to underestimate their true habits because they know what is it correct and uh, they're trying to say what is it correct and not what exactly they do. Uh, we have tools in uh, nutrition epidemiology to somehow evaluate how accurate is the information they give to us but uh, frankly speaking uh, we trust them and all studies you have seen and published and all the results have been reported and discussed in the media or in the scientific journals are based on the trust that the information we get from the people is correct. It's not like measuring blood pressure, it's not like measuring blood cholesterol. When I ask you how many coffees you had today, and if you had 12 coffees, but you know that it's not good, you may say, with great likelihood, that you had three or four coffees. It's the same if I ask you how many cigarettes you smoked, mm. and you know that cigarette smoking may cause lung cancer or other severe diseases, you may underestimate it just because you think that I would like to hear a healthy answer. Yes, uh, the temptation is to tell you what I think I want to tell you, and uh, but I presume you're using a very large number of people and, and over a period, so longitudinal type studies as well, that is part of your methodology? Yes. Using large samples yep. is always a, a way to reduce uh, variability and to increase stability of the measurements at the end you get. So using large samples 
you don't uh, afraid about uh, the people that lied, the people that under or, 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 or overestimated their uh, true habits, because at the end, what you look is on the average. Mm. Now, the Mediterranean diet, evidence is becoming quite strong in recent years about the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet. Can you just give me a quick summary of that? Well, um, the evidence are coming and coming and coming regarding the effect of the Mediterranean diet. At the beginning, the 70s and 80s, we have heard about the effect of the Mediterranean diet on cardiovascular diseases. Uh, now there are sev- several studies suggesting that Mediterranean diet may, may also have benefits on several types of cancer, uh, several uh, types of neurological, neurological disorders, mental health. For example, recently there was a meta-analysis regarding the effect of meta-analysis of a Mediterranean diet on depression, for example. Uh, Mediterranean diet is a quiet anti-inflammatory diet. It's uh, rich in uh, um, uh, antioxidants that uh, may help uh, uh, the organism to uh, lower uh, their inflammation levels. Probably this is the main path that Mediterranean diet reduces all these inflammatory diseases like cardiovascular disease, types of cancer, but also Mediterranean diet is rich in uh, um, a fatty acid that is uh, called polyunsaturated fatty acids like omega-3 fatty acids, which seems recent years to be beneficial for health, especially cognition, mental health, and also reduces psychological disorders. So Mediterranean diet is a variety of nutrients macro or micronutrients through the foods that uh, the people used to consume and uh, I have to say that Mediterranean diet uh, as we knew it in the 50s and 60s it does not exist anymore we don't have it what we see having uh, the definition of Mediterranean diet is what we wanted to see what we see having the Mediterranean pyramid is what we used to eat in the 50s and 60s in the Mediterranean region and particularly particularly in South Spain, in South Italy and in Greece and uh, some Greek islands. This is what happened before. We have defined the Mediterranean diet not based on our current habits but based on the habits of uh, the Ancestors and now we are trying to measure this healthy dietary pattern through several uh, ways like Mediterranean diet indexes and to see the level of adherence. What we have found in the Mediterranean Europe, in the regions of uh, Greece, of Spain, of France, of uh, uh, Italy, is that the level of adherence to the Mediterranean diet is much, much uh, lower than 60%. Can you just give me a brief summary of what the Mediterranean diet looks like. So if we were eating it right now or during the course of today, what sort of foods would they be? And you're saying it's changed over recent decades and I'm guessing it's uh, more red meat um, food from fast food outlets and stuff like that. Is is that right? The dietary habits of the people in the Mediterranean have changed. The Mediterranean diet is the same. The Mediterranean diet is what has been defined by investigators in the 50s and 60s and it has been defined as a dietary pattern that includes daily consumption of fruits, vegetables, salads and cereals. The only added lipid was the olive oil, nothing else. We didn't have butter or margarine or whatever. Moderate consumption of fish, of eggs, 
of uh, other fish products, seafood, etc., and very rare consumption of meat and meat products and uh, red or white meat. This was, uh, in general, the definition of the Mediterranean diet, and this is the definition we have still now. However, the question is, do we achieve? Can we say that we are close to this uh, dietary pattern that has been described 60 years ago? And the answer, as I said before, is that we are moving away. We are moving towards uh, a westernized diet, not the Mediterranean diet. Even the people that we are still in the Mediterranean region. However, it, it's interesting that we have measured adherence to the Mediterranean diet in other countries around the world where people from the, uh, are from the Mediterranean origin. For example, we have measured uh, adherence to the Mediterranean diet in immigrants from Greece or from Italy or from Spain living in the US, in Canada or in Australia. And we have found, and this is interesting, that their level of adherence to the Mediterranean diet is higher than the level of adherence of Mediterranean diet of the Greeks or the Spanish or the, or the Italian people. So it, it seems that they kept their transmission, their tradition, when they moved from uh, their countries of origin to their countries of immigration. Okay, so it's a big uh, influence on your health, and health, of course, leads to ageing. Now, you're involved with this very large worldwide study called the ATHLOS study. Yes. What's that? ATHLOS is uh, one of the largest funded uh, studies uh, in Europe and European uh, region. Uh, it was started in uh, 2015 and it has been funded by the European Commission under the Horizon 2020 uh, call. Uh, it is uh, a consortium that in includes uh, 18 international longitudinal studies with approximately 350,000 uh, of uh, participants from all around the world. Uh, 39 countries have been included in this uh, study, included uh, Australia, uh, countries from Europe, uh, US, Canada, South Africa, uh, Africa, North Africa, uh, South America, etc. And in this study, in Athlos study, uh, we are trying to measure uh, healthy aging. We have developed an index, uh, an index that measures uh, healthy aging, because healthy aging is a difficult task to measure. Uh, this index has been uh, based on functioning, mobility, cognition and emotional aspects. Uh, or can you give me an example of functioning? Yes. Uh, for example, we may ask a, a person how easily can you, uh, uh, let's say, uh, walk uh, 50 meters uh, without uh, having any breath problems mm -hmm. or uh, can, how easily can you go to the second floor of uh, your building. Now, you're redefining, I think, what it means to be old. Can you describe what you mean yes. by that? There is a tendency nowadays not to consider aging, uh, older age, chronologically. Uh, there's a tendency to uh, take into account uh, the age, not as a real number, but as a functioning and cognition and mental health. So uh, there's a tendency to move from uh, the numbers to something else, to the ability of a person to be as it was a few years before or 
more years before. So would you say that was like a biological aging versus a chronological aging? Exactly, exactly as you said. It's yep. now we're moving to the biological aging. We are trying to measure biological aging. This must be a very challenging study. You have so many people involved, so many countries. Uh, do you, are you finding that difficult? Well, since the data already existed, the only difficulty was to collect this data and harmonize them because there were different studies from different investigators and we had to collect this data, we have harmonized them and we have calculated this healthy aging index in each of these 350,000 participants in order to have an idea about the levels of healthy aging in these uh, regions and countries. Okay. Now, is it still too early to say what kind of outcomes you think you might get? We have already uh, preliminary analysis and already presented in several uh, scientific papers. Uh, we have found, for example, that the healthiest region according to healthy aging is Oceania uh, and uh, particularly uh, Australia uh, achieved uh, 62% uh, uh, in uh, an average of uh, 2,000 approximately participants that included in the study we had but um, uh, don't take it as an advantage of uh, the people living here because uh, this was uh, the only one study from the whole region of Oceania uh, regarding the other, uh, other countries, we have found that uh, the highest score in healthy aging achieved uh, by Switzerland uh, in Europe and uh, followed by Denmark, Austri Austria and uh, the Netherlands, which scores approximately to 68% of the ideal healthy aging. So again, this must be a very complicated equation that we're looking at here because there are so many factors that affect aging and it could be government policy could be amounts of pollution are you looking at all at the causes or, or why yes. some populations do better than exactly, others exactly exactly this is what we are looking at right now and we have already uh, revealed that uh, one of the major factors that influence healthy aging is how household uh, wealth and education level of people uh, so social factor seems to uh, influence very much healthy aging, followed by uh, chronic illnesses like uh, diabetes and hypertension and hypercholesterolemia, and especially uh, the way the, the people managed it, uh, because management of uh, diabetes or hypertension of, uh, or hypercholesterolemia is a uh, one very tricky thing and very important in order to achieve a healthy aging. You can live forever with a diabetes and if you, have, if you could manage your glucose levels. And other factors influencing healthy aging were lifestyle behaviors like physical activity, smoking and excess alcohol intake. Uh, what about uh, social connectivity? Is that part of it? Yes. Uh, well, we have not studied yet in this study, but uh, based on my other studies, favorite studies, my own studies that I have the privilege to supervise, we have found that the family coherence and uh, uh, social connectivity is a very important role in order to achieve uh, longevity and why not healthy aging also. Well, it makes sense to me. Now, how do you think this sort of research might affect uh, medical policy, medical practices, and perhaps government policy? Well, we hope that it will affect at the end when we present the final report on a positive way. Uh, for example, if the government see that uh, uh, in order to have uh, po their population to age healthy, they have to increase uh, their... Um, 
um, physical activity levels of the population, they may have second thoughts on how can they do this. Oh, so that might be like town designs, uh, opportunities to walk and cycle as opposed to using a car? Is exactly. Or uh, creating areas that people can walk safely, can uh, make sports activities or uh, uh, other activities, uh, not necessarily sport, and uh, that can afford it by anyone. Because as, you, as I said before, uh, social indicators and household wealth is a very, very important factor. So we want uh, healthy aging for everyone and not only for the rich one. Are there any other key features of the report that you want to mention before we wind up? Uh, the only one I would like to, to, to put at the end is that uh, uh, nutritional habits uh, seems to play a certain role in longevity and we expect to play also a, healthy, uh, a certain role, a significant role in this healthy aging uh, approach we are trying to do. And uh, it is a very uh, challenging and important issue to pursue government uh, to move forward towards uh, a, a, healthy aging, a, a healthy nutrition pattern uh, that has uh, reduced meat intake and uh, all these cholesterol increasing uh, products. Uh, now you may or may not want to comment on this but uh, raging hot in Australia at the moment is a debate about a sugar tax. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, well I keep always saying that uh, why do we need sugar in our lives? Why do, do we need sugar in our diets? And uh, we'll leave it at that then. And, and um, it's a great pleasure to and a privilege to have you visiting us here in Australia. And uh, thank you also to my friend, uh, Professor Nenad Namovsky, who has invited you. And I really hope you enjoy the rest of your stay. Thank you very much. It was really my pleasure, our interview.